Take out your Bible once again, opening to the book of Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. You may have thought when we first got to Revelation chapter 22 some five weeks ago that, uh, my goodness, we're just about done, but here we are now in the fifth sermon on the, on the last book of the Bible, and this may be the last one with one more message to go in closing out the book of Revelation. But this morning we continue looking at verses 6 through 21, a series of exhortations given by Christ for his church in lieu of the visions, in lieu of the vision of Christ enthroned upon uh, the throne, the sovereign throne of God above. Now in light of this church, be diligent to make sure you're doing this. And there's a series of five exhortations that close this book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, we'll begin reading once again this morning at verse 6. John writes, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you once again this morning because where else would we turn? Out of our neediness, out of our struggle, we have assembled together in this place 
in pursuit of you. That you, by grace, through Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of Christ, might draw near to us. That we might know your nearness. We might know your presence. We might know your fullness. That, Father, we might find hope and joy and peace and patience. And Father, you answer our prayer this morning by giving us your word. And the book of Revelation, part of your word. Father, as we open this final chapter and continue to look at these exhortations, Father, give us a heart to obey. Remind us that these exhortations are not about our own morality and obedience independent of you. Remind us, teach us that these exhortations, these instructions, these commands come to us out of the vision of who your beloved Son is. It's because we have seen Christ. It's because our hearts have been entranced by Him. It's because we see in Him all that we need. Our great earnest desire is to please Him and to live in light of the vision, which is what these things are. Father, if we don't have the heart for these exhortations, show us Christ. Open our eyes to see Christ so that whether John commands them or whether he doesn't, our heart is to please the Lord and live faithful to Him. Help us this day. Give us hearts to see, hearts to believe, hearts that so love Jesus Christ that when we hear these exhortations, there's not an inner tension within us. There's just the great desire to want to do them because we love our King. Help us this day. May the Spirit move mightily upon hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been saying all along, the book of Revelation closes with a series of five exhortations or commands to holy living. We're titling this little section just Exhortations to Holiness. This series of instructions and exhortations, and up to this point, we've looked at the first two of them. The first exhortation we see in verses 6 and 7 announces blessing on those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. What John is telling us is these visions that have run ever since chapter 4 all the way through chapter 21, they're not just simply to uh, give us something cool to sit back and think about. This was a means of grace to those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 who are struggling. Those churches who are full of true converts, but also they're mixed and mingled by people who think they're true converts, but they're not. And some are are false teachers, some are drifting away from Jesus Christ, some of them within the church are pulling other church members away from Jesus. And so over and over to those seven churches, Jesus' message was repent, return to your king. This church has drifted away from Christ into false teaching, into immorality, into compromise with the world. You've chased other idols and you're still doing it. You gather together and you worship Jesus. 
But Jesus doesn't accept it. Because you belong to him. He purchased his people. You can't have two lovers. Return to your king. And so that your heart might be enchanted and captivated to return. Look! Chapters 4 through 21. Look at your king. Be so overwhelmed by him that nothing can compare. That's why the book ends with this exhortation. This book is to be kept, to live in light of, to constantly keep coming back to it. If, if after our study of Revelation, your reflex is to, well, I'm glad that's over. I'm not going to look at that for a long time. You haven't understood the message. <laughs> the, you, I, my prayer has been from the beginning as the most practical book in the New Testament. You now see the book of Revelation. You've got to go to every single day of your life to capture this vision of Jesus Christ because just as the seven churches need it, they're representative of every church in every age, we need it as well every day. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book because what is revealed in it is the beauty of our conquering king enthroned above, ruling sovereignly over the church age, accomplishing the purposes of the Father even over our enemies. Those enemies are being used by the king on his throne to accomplish the Father's purposes. When you're battling the enemies, don't you need that vision? Oh, no, no, understand Right now in that situation, your king is sovereign over them and your king is at work using them to accomplish his purposes that you still don't know about yet. Don't you need that vision? Blessed are those who keep it. So, brothers and sisters, are you keeping the prophecy? Are you keeping these visions? Are you living according to the truth that's been revealed to us there? And I guess the more fundamental question that you, you, we, we just have to continue to ask is, did you see the Christ in these visions? The great temptation and where Satan wants us to stay in these is that we focus upon these visions on some far less important controversy about them. And never, ever see what that vision is revealing to you about the glory, the greatness, the beauty, the supremacy, the superiority, the victory of your king. Has God granted the grace for you to see Christ? And are you living upon that? That's the first exhortation. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy. The second exhortation we looked at last week. The Christian is exhorted to worship God alone. Worship God alone. Verse 8 and 9. Worship God. All who are not in Christ commit idolatry continually, right? Those who are not in Christ perpetually, continually, every breath that they take, they are guilty of idolatry. They worship something that is not God. They worship not the true creator. They worship something in the creation. They bow down before it. Their hearts bow down before it. They're idolaters. But this book was written to the churches, wasn't it? So the point here is, just like the unbeliever is prone to commit idolatry, newsflash, Christians are prone to commit idolatry too. We too, though we gather this morning in the name of Jesus Christ to worship the one true God to whom we come to and through faith in Jesus Christ, 
we are continually tempted to bow down to another idol. Now, probably we are not physically on our hands and knees doing this before an idol. We talked about this last week. But our hearts are treasuring things above Jesus Christ. But we are to worship God alone. Why do you suppose twice in the, at the end of the book of Revelation, John the Apostle is rebuked with these words. You must not do that. We just read one of them here in Revelation chapter 22. What has he done? He has bowed down to worship an angel who's God's messenger. And what did the angel say? Never do that. You must not do that. Why do you suppose the book of Revelations with two instances of John falling down to worship an angel and then being rebuked for it. I'll give you the answer to it to show you and I how easy it is even for a Christian to fall into idolatry. We are prone to it. We're guilty of it this week. Idolatry was warned against consistently in the message to the seven churches. That God alone is worthy of worship was the message of the visions. How in, in, in pretty much all of the visions, the throne is encircled by what? 24 elders, angels, and what are they doing night and day? Worshiping. The message of the visions has been worship God alone. So that was the message to the seven churches. That was the message of, of, the, of the visions of the chapters four and following. And throughout Revelation... Jesus is exposing the seductive nature, pictured in Babylon, the seductive nature of the world who tempts us to other lovers, to other idols. But here at the end of the book of Revelation, having seen these, the glorious Christ enthroned victorious over all, out of the overflow of who Christ is, the beauty, the majesty, the fullness of who he is. Don't worship anything but him. Verse 9 ends, closing words there. Worship God. Worship him. Why do we need that exhortation? Because you know as well as I do, even this week, we struggle with worshiping other idols. And that, those other idols, they may be sinful things, but they may be good things. Your family, your children, your grandchildren your money, your idea of church, your idea of, of politics. It could be any number of things that your heart treasures and finds its hope in and its joy in that's not Jesus Christ. So, where did we leave off last week? We had a task to do. To spend this last week examining our hearts Asking God to help us to see. What do you see? Do you find, God, that I'm treasuring something more than you? Are you seeing that there's something in my heart I'm treasuring more than Jesus? Did you do it? Did you spend that time with the Lord? And we got very specific. That needs to be done with Bible open. Seeking the face of God in prayer. It's in, it is asinine to think you could ever possibly worship God alone if you're not every day Bible open seeking the face of God. 
So how is it between your heart and God when you think back upon this past week in his word? The great danger as we close out the book of Revelation is we remain numb to how Christ is talking to his churches, how he's talking to you and I. This book is to be kept and lived upon. This book reminds us worship God alone. How is it between your heart and treasuring God above all things? Well, that brings us to the third this morning. The third exhortation. Let the righteous do right. Let the righteous do right. Look at verse 11. Let the evil doer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So let's just pause there for just a moment. What's the ultimate saying here? Those who have been made righteous in Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been made righteous are commanded to do right. Live out who you are. If you've been made righteous, be right. If you've been made holy, then be holy. There's really nothing confusing about that part. That's very clear. Let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. The difficult part to understand, if there is one, might be found in what comes before that. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Doesn't it sound strange to hear that from the lips of God? Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. I mean, this is our holy God saying this, who despises sin, saying here, let the evildoer just continue in that. If you're righteous, be righteous. If you're evil, let them be evil. So, how do we understand that? Well, the key is, is, is understanding, as has been the truth of all of the book of Revelation, is you got to know your Old Testament. The book of Revelation doesn't come to us just out of thin air. All the ingredients, everything that's necessary to understand who God is and what he's doing, going all the way back to Genesis 1, and the language and the pictures and the imagery that he's using, it's all there. We just need to, to know our Bibles. And in this instance... This is a passage that's connected to Daniel chapter 12, which, again, Daniel stands behind much of the book of Revelation, but Daniel chapter 12 contains prophecies concerning the end of time. Now, let's be very clear there. By now, I hope we understand end of time doesn't mean the way 21st century church usually thinks about end of time. End of time, very consistent with the whole of the Bible. What did the New Testament consider the end times? The church age, the time between Jesus' ascension and until his return. And that's what Daniel is talking about as well. The prophecies concerning the end time, it's the church age. Now, what's going on today? And among all the things Daniel says about the time in that end time, the last thing that happens, now it's been going on 2,000 years, but the last thing that happens before Jesus returns, Daniel says this, 
in chapter 12, verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but only those who are wise shall understand. So Daniel, when he's thinking about the last days, when he's thinking about the church age, the time between Christ's ascension and his return, Daniel describes this period that we're living in right now and we've been living in ever since Jesus is. Daniel describes it this way. It's a time when the wicked will act wickedly. It's just, that's what's a, character, a defining characteristic of the last days. The wicked will act wickedly and they will not understand the things of God. Whereas others will wash themselves and be refined. And so that description of the end times we see in Daniel chapter 12 is now here at the end of Revelation chapter 22, just same vision put in the form of a command, right? Daniel defines the church age as a day the wicked will not understand they're going to do wicked. And the wise, those wise by God's grace, whose eyes have been opened to see him and repent and profess faith in Jesus Christ, those people will be righteous, will be refined. And so John takes that, that defining characteristic of the end time and says, church, you're living in this time now, so the command to you is, if you are righteous by God's grace, do right. Don't be like the wicked who characteristically in this day are unwise and they will continue to be wicked. You, by God's grace, you've seen the fullness of who Christ is. Do right. Don't drift like many in the church were doing in chapters 2 and 3. Don't drift into immorality. Don't drift into doing unright. Don't drift into doing wrong. Don't drift into doing wicked. Isn't that what Jesus exposed among some of the churches? You do right out of the overflow of the beauty of Christ. Now let me be very clear here. Jesus through John is not saying, well in the last days, in the time between Jesus' ascension and his return, the wicked are going to be wicked, don't evangelize, just let them be wicked. That's not what he's saying here. Obviously that would contradict pretty much everything else that's come before it. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans and told that he will be a blessing to the nations. If, if chapter 22 were saying, just let them go. They're wicked, let them be wicked. That would counter so much. So that can't be what it means. Furthermore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Out of our spirit-born, Holy Spirit-born love for Jesus, which is the defining characteristic of a true believer. The Spirit has taken out our heart of rebellion that does not love Jesus. In fact, it hates Jesus and given us a heart that loves Jesus. We now continually, out of our love for him, we look to him. Paul writes in Corinthians, as we gaze upon him, we're being transformed into his likeness. We're becoming like him. We are his ambassadors to the world. And indeed, the eternal gospel is to be communicated to the unbeliever, to our unbelieving family and friends and those around us. Not even just as an evangelism program. I don't think that's helpful. 
I think out of the overflow of your love for Jesus, you're becoming conformed to the likeness of him. You are an ambassador evangelism program. No, you are the picture of Jesus Christ to the world. You go and live out your love for Jesus and communicate that love for Jesus. Urge the unbeliever by God's grace, to repent and turn to this one that you love so dearly. And be assured that the elect of God will repent in due time as the Spirit of God works in their hearts just as he did in yours. So these verses here, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, are not anti-evangelistic. What they are, they reinforce what was said in Daniel's day concerning the last days and exhorting those who by God's grace are made righteous in Jesus Christ, exhorting you who have been made right, be righteous, be right, do right. He's exhorting us on to faithfulness. And if we apply this rightly, the presence of wicked and unrighteousness in the world does not mean that God is not on his throne. Let me say that again because there is a very real tension. I feel it, and I know many of you do too. We've had conversations about this, that the presence of evil in the world today, sometimes it feels like God's purposes are being thwarted, that he's not on his throne. And maybe we don't say it that way. Maybe we say it this way. Oh, I fear for my children and grandchildren. Things have never been as bad as they are today. Things have never been, man has never been more sinful than they are today. Beloved, that's just not true. That is just false. Go back and read church history. Go back and read even, read what the, what, what the barbaric practices of the pagan today looks like Disneyland compared to what took place in the first century. And I'm not saying that things that go on today are not bad. I'm just saying it is, it is, it is a crazy and foolish thing to say things are not as, or things are worse today than they've ever been. Or that this world is more sinful today than it's ever been. That's just not true. And the God who was sovereign over the world in the first century, in the barbaric practices of the unbeliever, of the unregenerate in those days, guess what? As bad as things may, you may perceive them to be in our day, and they are, he is sovereign over those as well. They are pawns in his hand. If it's helpful to think of a chess game, and I don't mean to portray life as being a game, but I would simply say that God is using even the evildoer and the wickedness of the wicked to accomplish his purposes. And that's a message of the book of Revelation. Before our king enthroned ultimately judges the beast, the false prophet, Babylon, the prostitute, right? Symbolic of worldliness. And even the great dragon himself, Satan. What is everything that leads up to that moment? Are those things out of control, just kind of going crazy in God's world and he can't do anything about it? Absolutely not. He's using them to accomplish his purposes. That's why this vision 
inspires within us. You who are made righteous, do right. Do right. What we see in our world today is sinful. It's ugly. But it is as it has always been since the first century. And certainly past that as well. Jesus himself warned in the first century things would be this way. The apostles of Jesus warned the believers in that day. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days, last days, how does the New Testament think about those? The time between the ascension of Jesus and his return. Was Paul and Timothy living in that period of time? Yes. So Paul is informing Timothy, these things are going on, not just some unknown future time that won't even be around when you're alive, Timothy, but right now, this is the reality. In the last days, there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. What's Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, this is going on in your day. I'm not talking about some, I'm not informing you in some centuries from now what it will be like what is that prophet timothy he's telling timothy right now don't be surprised when things look bad in your day don't be caught off guard you're living in the last times as the new testament defines the last time and so are we coming alive just don't be surprised when you leave here today and turn on the news and some crazy thing has happened some despicable thing some horrific thing has happened don't be surprised. In these last days, the evildoer will be evil. The wicked will do wicked. But you, you are not of that kind anymore. You once were wicked. You once were evil. You once were the unbeliever. But by God's grace, you've been made righteous. So do right. Have you been made holy by Jesus Christ? Through your repentance and profession of faith in Jesus Christ alone, have you been made holy then? When you leave here today, the evildoer is going to do evil. The wicked is going to do wicked. But you, you, out of the overflow of your love for Jesus, be holy. We live in a day today where we're going to talk about false teaching here in just a moment. It was true in Revelation 2 and 3, false teaching creeps into the life of the church. And one of the things false teaching, one of the things the ways Satan likes to use false teaching is to make it sound as much like biblical Christianity as possible, but to attach on it something other than Jesus Christ and to create a false gospel that is no gospel whatsoever. But meanwhile, we can gather together and, and we can talk the language and talk Jesus and feel like it's the true gospel. One of the ways we've seen Satan do this and false teachers come in is to abuse the grace of God. 
the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the truth of the gospel is, my salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, not dependent upon my works. That's true. Salvation is not by works, solely upon the works of Jesus Christ, and by grace through faith in Him. But here's where we get so close to the truth. It's all by grace, and then we deviate. Therefore, my works don't matter. Therefore, I live by grace, not by works. Do you see how there, there is truth in that statement? Is there not? But is there not also a little crack where you can take that to a place that maybe the Bible never intended it to be? I'm saved by grace, therefore I can do whatever I want to. I can say, I can live, I can do, I can practice, I can engage in these activities because I'm saved by grace. It is a tension, is it not? I trust we've all been there. If you hear these words and you're feeling conviction, I don't want to alienate you and you feel like, oh, no, I'm one of those. You probably are. And if we're all honest, we all have been. But if that is how we think, that is concerning. It either shows one of two things. Number one, we are very, very immature in our understanding of Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're either very immature or number two, you have not been born again by the Spirit of God. And I, I'm in no position to tell you which one of those two it is. That will be for you and I to go before the Lord and to seek the face of God. What we should expect a Christian to say is, because I have been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, because by faith in Him, in His works, not my own, because of this unfathomable miracle of grace, I will now, or out of the overflow of that, I will now do what is right unto him. I am his ambassador. I will do what most accurately reflects him. I've been made holy by him, washed in his blood through faith in him. Therefore, I will pursue to be as much like him as possible. I'll be holy and right because he is holy and right. I will not seek to try to live out some loophole in grace. I've been saved to be, Romans chapter 8 says, conformed to the likeness of Jesus. So if the, your grace is leading you, giving you a loophole to claim the grace of Jesus Christ, but then allows you to live a little bit like the world, <laughs> wrong. We have we have filtered into false teaching and misunderstood that the whole purpose of salvation is to make you like Jesus. We've been saved to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Is this an easy thing? Of course not. Some of us, probably most of us, are engaged in this battle even now. You're probably thinking, well, how do I move forward in it? And I don't want to be unhelpful here. But I do think Hebrews, which we reference almost every Sunday, gives us what we need. 
If we're struggling with a right appropriation of grace to become more like Jesus, how do I become more like him? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely. Step one. And looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, looking to him, who, oh, by the way, Paul writes, and again, we almost reference this every week, as we behold him with unveiled face, we are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Again, I'm convinced that holy living and right living cannot be done if your Bible is closed. It cannot be done if you're getting your vision of Jesus from listening to another preacher's podcast or another preacher's YouTube video or reading another preacher's book. That's their vision of Jesus. And insofar as we pray it's a right vision, supplement your own. That can be helpful. I use those things. But it cannot be your primary view of Jesus. That's their view of Jesus. And it would make sense that we are tempted to utilize a loophole, a perceived loophole in grace to try to claim grace, but then live like the world, live like everybody. Because I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on what everybody else is doing. How do you combat that? You yourself. I myself. Get face to face with Jesus who is seen here. Have your heart so by the Spirit of God, so turn to Jesus with the affections of your heart that the things of the world, any loophole, any perceived loophole in grace that gives you an opportunity to live like the world, why would I? Because Christ is what I want. Christ is the one I'm in love with. Christ is the one who's everything to me. I want to be like him. I want to look like him. I want to be a faithful ambassador. I want to see my king on this throne and to live in light of this truth. Out of the overflow of him, I want to do right. Let the righteous be right. Let the holy be holy. Do right and be holy. Not pull your bootstraps up and this week, let's try a harder covenant life, church. But rather, if you're finding in your heart a struggle to do right and be holy, It's only symptomatic of you're not clinging to Jesus tight enough. Does that make sense? That's why this exhortation exists. Out of the overflow of this, do right, be holy. But you have to see this Christ first. The passage says he will bring his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. That's just simply in keeping with what we saw in the previous chapter. That there are two groups of people contained, uh, all, of, all of humanity divided into two groups. Those whose names are written in the book of life and those who are not. Those whose names are not found in the book of life will be judged by their works. It will be the evidence against them to the eternal damnation. The Christian won't endure that kind of judgment. Even if the record of our wrongs were to be brought up before us in that day, it's not for the purpose of judgment. It will be for the glory of Christ to say, and oh, by the way, 
Line item one, Jesus did it. Line item number two, Jesus paid for it. Line item number three, Jesus conquered it. And oh, the glory of Christ in that moment. Could you imagine having your sins brought before you? And again, I'm not suggesting this, is, but if, if it's the route it goes, in every step of the way, it's not to make you feel bad, it is to exalt Jesus Christ as everything. But you and I, we are obligated to live holy, to do right. Not to earn our salvation, but because we love Jesus, which is the defining characteristic of a Christian. So if you're finding it difficult to do right and be holy, what does that say? It's about your love for Jesus, isn't it? It's lacking. Very quickly, the fourth exhortation we see in verses 13 through 17 and I will have to be quick with this is to wash your robes wash your robes verse 13 I am the alpha and the omega Christ says the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Well, the exhortation we have here, the first one was keep the revelation. Number two, worship God alone. Number three, let the righteous do right. Number four, wash your robes. Wash your robes. Blessings are pronounced upon those who do. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. What does that mean? At the very fundamental level it means this you your robes are filthy me my robes are filthy and no one who is clothed in filth will be permitted to enter the holy city to eat of the tree of life isn't that what the passage says there therefore you must be washed now who is it who's saying this Go back to verse 13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This command to wash your robes doesn't come from a feisty pastor who's saying, you know, you guys are just not what you should be. It's not even coming from John himself. It's coming from the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Jesus himself. When I was preparing this message, I almost skipped over this part and had to repent of that. Because the command is wash your robes, and we can certainly talk about washing our robes and the need for it, but this point is made all the more provocatively when we understand that this command are not the words of anyone other than God himself. The credentials of Christ, he lays them out before he gives the command. I am the Alpha, the beginning, the first. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet. 
I'm the alpha, the beginning, the first. I'm also the omega, the end, the last. What's he saying there? I'm the alpha, the beginning of all that exists. Go all the way back to Genesis 1, back to the very beginning. I'm there. And oh, by the way, I'm also the omega, the end, the last. Meaning you fast forward all the way through to the consummation of the creation. The consummation of creation, fall in Genesis 3. The promise of redemption through Jesus Christ. And the promise of the consummation of the kingdom. You get all the way to the very end. And I'm there too. It's all about me, Jesus is saying, from beginning to end. I was there, and it was all about me. Now, I'm the one telling you, you want a place with me? Those robes better be washed. Those robes must be washed. Because anyone with filth, I tell you, the first and the last, I am everything, I am all, I am will not allow you where I am. From that perspective, now all of a sudden, our eyes, our ears ought to be heightened to say, okay, well, that adds a whole new level of gravity here. How do I wash these robes? Stay with me here. Let not any one of us be like, oh, I've got this. How do we wash these robes? Well, the answer is given to us not in this text. It's given to us in a previous text here in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Let me read just very quickly. Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. What? In the blood of the Lamb. There's the answer. The command, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end says, wash your robes. How? The only way is to wash them in the crimson blood of Christ. His blood is your detergent. His blood is the only detergent capable of washing the filth of our sin away. But we, having seen this vision of our victorious Christ, our victorious and conquering King, Almighty, who lived and died and rose again, who's now enthroned on high, who's sovereign, who's holy. That everything in all creation and every one of these visions is bowing down. And oh, by the way, they're clothed in white. You and I must, when we see that, acknowledge inherently, 
I don't fit that picture. In and of myself, my robes are not white. I must find how this robe of mine may be washed. And the answer we see here is the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a reason we sang the song that we sang this morning. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again in order to get me to where they are and into the what can make me whole so that I can stay? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, what, what, what could possibly pardon this stain of guilt and sin that I might have access to this Holy One? Answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Therefore, for my cleansing, this I plea. What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How can my sins be atoned for, be taken off of me so that I might stand? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes this. In light of that, I'm not nearest the gulf between His holiness and where I am. Oh, precious is the flow that makes this white as snow. No other fount, no other detergent, no other washing machine, no other morality, no other religion, no other good works, no other fount. Title it anything you want. I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wash your robes. And as a further motivation, look what comes next. Outside. Outside of what? Outside of the gates, outside of the wall. Not giving presence into the presence of God. So these are those whose robes are not washed. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this is very interesting. We live in a day today where it's very easy on a Sunday morning, we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ, we sing about what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we can, it goes back to what we're talking about, claiming the grace of God, claiming the blood of Jesus Christ. But living in a day where there's kind of a false gospel where we perceive a loophole that we can also live like the world. How we live matters. How we live is a reflection of what we really believe about God and the fullness of Christ. And here in this picture, we have a list of sins given. The dogs, the sorcerers, sexually immoral. immoral. Why? This was written to the church. These outsiders, they're, you know, barring just coming into the church when this text is being read. These outsiders are not hearing this book being read. What is John and Jesus, what is Jesus communicating 
to the church when he takes, here's those inside who profess faith in Jesus washed by the blood. But just so you see, I'm serious. Look outside the gate. Why? I think it's this, to discourage the one who professes faith in Jesus but who is compromising that profession. Is that not what Jesus is exposing to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? You're saying all the right things with your lips. You're saying all the right things on a Sunday morning. Um, let's bring it on your, your Twitter, your social media page. I mean, everything is portrayed rightly in your correspondence, but in your heart, in your heart, that's not who you are. In your heart, you've compromised. In your heart, you are something altogether different. And make no mistake, wash your robes. Only those whose robes are washed will have entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. And those who are washed, this is an evidence of washing. You will not go on in unrepentant sin. May that come to bear upon our soul. Listen to that again. Those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ will not go on living in unrepentant sin. I didn't say you won't go on living in sin. That's the battle we're in. The caveat here is unrepentant sin, meaning I've sinned, I'm going to claim on a Sunday I'm covered in the blood, but every other day I live very proud, very pridefully, unbelief. It's all about me. I'm a murderer, hoping no one has physically done that. But what did Jesus say? If even you've got slander on your tongue, if you tell falsehoods about somebody or portray something wrongly, you've murdered with your tongue. So in all of these sins, don't just take them on face value. Also understand how Jesus in the new covenant understands these. These are also sins of the heart that manifest themselves not just in the most diabolical ways you can imagine. It's probably in some of the most subtle ways that you and I are guilty of day after day after day. To continue in those sins unrepentantly is evidence we've not been washed by the blood. That's why we have this picture of the outsiders. Those who practice a secret life of sexual immorality, who commit murder, again, either in their heart. Of course, that counts in reality. I don't think that's in this room uh, a problem. But even in the heart, an idolater in the heart who refuses to repent and return to their king has no reason to expect place in the new heaven and new earth. Does it sound harsh? Maybe it means even our understanding of the gospel and the call of the gospel to Jesus Christ. We have been influenced by a false teacher that has created a perceived loophole that you can live a life of compromise and still go to heaven and still love Jesus. Jesus is clear here in these exhortations. After seeing who he is, after desiring him, keep this book, worship God alone, let the right be right. Oh my goodness. Wash your robes. Continually this morning. What is a sin in your life? Maybe it's been days, weeks, months, maybe years that, since you haven't repented of. Would you pray right now, Spirit of God, I know this isn't right. And for whatever reason, my heart has become numb and cold and callous to it. 
And I've almost accepted it as though I can live this way, and yet I'm also going to claim my place in eternity. Those two things are mutually exclusive events. The true believer will wash themselves in the blood of Jesus Christ, will return to the fountain every single time to be washed. Beloved, is that you? And very quickly, the final exhortation, number five. Avoid false teaching which leads to wrong living. Avoid false teaching which leads to wrong living. In verse 18, we read, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. A lot of speculation, a lot of books written on adding and taking away from the book of Revelation. Let's let the Bible itself define what that means for us. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses says this to his people, And now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God I command you. What does adding to or taking away from there? Moses himself defines what he means. It means live under the authority of this, these words. Live under the authority. Not over them so that you can kind of reshape them and define them. You live under the words. And now Jesus brings that same image. He and here the, the book of Revelation. And he's simply saying this. This book of Revelation is not yours or mine to sit back and contemplate, hmm, what do I think this book is saying? But rather, as in Moses' day, the words of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ is a word of God for us to live under. We do not have freedom to pick and choose what part of the vision do I like, what part of the vision do I not like, what part of the vision do I accept, what part of the vision do I not accept? That's what false teachers do. That's what somebody who is not living under the authority of God himself and says in this book, this is God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the best commentary on the Bible, the Bible itself. If there's something I don't understand in Revelation, I don't need to go to Lifeway and find a commentary on Revelation. I just need to read the Bible more closely and intimately and prayerfully and pray for God to help me to see how all of this fits together. I don't need someone, I, I, I just need to bring myself under the authority of the Word of God. But a false teacher, what do they do? They take God's Word. And they pick and choose what serves their best interests, their hobbies, their ministries. They add to it, they take away as they please, as it serves their needs. God's people don't have that liberty. 
God's people fall beneath it and in submission to it. They receive it by God's Spirit. Prayerfully, they hear it and live according to it. The false teachers in the seven churches were oh so subtle. They looked like solid teachers. They used the language of Bible teachers. They would have used the scrolls. Scroll would have been opened. Verses would have been read. But then how does the church get from where from living under the authority of the word of God to what Jesus exposes? Idolatry, compromise, worldliness, false how? Because at some point they stopped living under, thus saith the Lord, and living in light and keeping that and started shaping it to serve their own purposes, their own wants, their own desires, and thus they were living wrongly. If we want to live right and to pursue holiness, we must be men and women of the word submitted to that word. Come what may. These are the five exhortations. Keeping these five exhortations don't mean you go to heaven when you die. If anyone goes to be with God forever, it's because of Jesus Christ. Those who love Jesus. Those who are being conformed to his likeness. But that's the issue, isn't it? That can be a very subjective measuring stick. Because what I have in mind when I think conformity to Jesus Christ, the, the, the picture of Jesus I have, you may have a different picture in mind. And, and conformity to Jesus, you may hear what I'm saying. Say, oh, man, you're overstating it. Jesus doesn't demand that much. Well, we can't both be right, can we? And so these exhortations are given to us, among many others we find throughout the Bible, but here in closing out the book of Revelation, saying, I don't want there to be any confusion, John says, about a true believer. Because looking at those seven churches, there's a lot of confusion, right? There's believers and unbelievers. And even the unbelievers believe that they are believers, yet Jesus is condemning them. They have no place in, in, in God's kingdom. But they're not going to believe that. These exhortations become... God's own standard that says if you've seen Christ you've paid attention to these visions and the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to behold Him these five things they come in the form of command but you will do them you'll live in light of this this vision of Christ and all of His glory you will worship God alone you won't even in your battle against idols Nothing can compare to Jesus because you're keeping your eyes fixed upon him and he is all. That's a true believer. You will live right. You will do right. Not because you're a good moral person, but because Christ is righteous. Because Christ is holy. And because you are so in love and captivated by him, you're clinging so closely to him in the word daily, every day, conformed to his likeness, you are becoming more like him, living rightly being holy. You will wash your robes, not just one time. That's going to be a danger for us. Oh, I did that 30 years ago. I prayed that prayer. Great. I pray that that's true. 
Are you telling me you're not still battling sin? Are you telling me you're still not drinking? Every day you've got to wash those robes. Not to be resaved again, but that's the evidence that, that you receive that new heart, that Christ is all, that I come. And even when I sin, it disrupts my fellowship with Jesus. And I need to fix that every single day, constantly washing in the blood of Jesus Christ. That person who loves Jesus and recognizes in a moment, I've drifted. I've been in a week, a day, a season, a few months of drift away from him. I repent, I return, I wash in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a true believer. And you won't find yourself under the instruction of a false teacher. You'll position yourself deliberately, intentionally, even if your flesh doesn't want to, under the authority of one, of teachers, uphold the glory of God and the beauty of Christ as all. I love it. These are not five things for you to do this week. These are five things we should already be doing if we love Jesus. How is it between your soul and your king this morning? Use these five exhortations as I have to do as well. Where is there a, a drift? Where is there a struggle? 